listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I got to tell you something, people. This gentleman on my show today, I'm very excited to have on. He, uh, you know him from the band The Church. He's had a very prolific solo career. He has a new album out. He's a poet, and he's an artist, which I want to talk about his artwork. And my guest is Steve Kilby. How you doing? Hey, how are you, everybody? So, I got to ask you, you have the new album, The Hall of Counterfeits. Did did you do the artwork for the cover, or did you get someone no, else? No, um, no, I um, I have a very old friend, and she did the cover for the album before this, which was called Eleven Women. One day, I was just looking through her Instagram, and I saw this great. She's an art teacher, and she'd done this great collage where she'd cut out bits and pieces and put them all together. And I said, I want that to be the cover of my album. And so when I made this next album. Um, because I made it at the same studio with the same bunch of guys, I wanted the continuity of having a similar cover. So it was this. So it's an Australian artist called uh, Christy Monored who did it, not me. I, I I do paintings in in pastels. I'm a pastelist. Now now when when did you get involved in the painting? Because you you write so much music, you record. I mean, how do you have time to paint? Um. Well, that's two, that's two questions there. Um, so first one is um, when I, um, a long time ago, um, my brother had a little record company, was releasing my records, and he said, you know, you should paint your next album cover. And I said, oh, I can't paint. And he said, yeah, you used to do lots. I used to draw all, I used to do caricatures of all the people in the family, like really rude and nasty ones of my mum and dad and my brothers and all my uncles and stuff. So he said, have a go at that. So um, I did a cover and he said, look, I'm going to auction it off. And he auctioned it off and there was more demand. And he said, hey, people want to buy your paintings. So um, I just started painting because there was a demand. Although, of course, I'm admitting there never would have been a demand for my paintings if I hadn't been, you know, already had a bit of a musical career. So I suppose people who couldn't, get enough of my music started buying my paintings and then i i started really working on it and thinking about it and then i discovered um it, it's such a lovely process painting it's um it's music is writing music makes me although i enjoy it it makes me anxious um so I'm like, oh, God, oh. but when i'm painting i i put on music and that's the other great thing about music is when do i get time it's a great context to listen to, to music is when you're painting. And it's amazing when you, you know, you smoke a few joints and you listen to your favorite record and you do some painting and everything all sort of swirls around the music and the painting. And I go off into this other place where I, if someone comes up and says, hey, and taps me on the shoulder, I can get, it's like being woken out of a dream or something. So um, I, I love painting. I'm not a great painter, and I never will be because I started too late. You can't. You imagine someone who started writing songs at age 50, like you know what I mean. And so, but I'm never going to be a great painting. But it's really enjoyable. It's a great way to listen to music. What kind of music do you listen to when you paint? This interests me. The music. What's your choice? Do you have a certain choice? Go tos. Uh, this this is going to be the most disappointing fucking answer you've ever heard. Are you ready? I. <laughs> yeah. I have on my iTunes is a, a shuffle that plays. It sort of, it, I guess, it plays songs I've been listening to before. So it's sort of called Steve's Radio, and at the moment, it's it's throwing out all this ambient music, like some great ambient music, music I haven't really heard of before, and old favourites like there'll be Dylan and Bowie and the Beatles and it's like a really great mix of of things the real answer should be what people really want to hear is oh I've got my pristine vinyl and I've got hundreds and hundreds of vinyl records and I've got this great system and I carefully put my but it's not it's really boring and mediocre I listen to iTunes shuffle well that's that's the best way to do it I listen to my Amazon I always just say hey play a Steve's, my name's Steve too, Steve's Playlist, and they play shit I want to hear, and I go... Yeah, 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 yeah. So the new album, The Hall of Counterfeits. Yeah. yeah. When did you record it? When? 
during pandemic last, or pre? Last last year. Um, boy, it's all becoming a blur. I think I did a bit last year, and I think I might have done a little bit this year as well. Um, over three or four sessions. Now, because of the pandemic and everything that was going on, was it harder for you to be creative at this time? No, it, it was it was much easier because um, normally I'm on the road. Like it might seem hard to believe, but um, normally I do like two two hundred gigs a year, every year, touring in America, touring in Australia. And um, when I'm touring, I don't write a lot of songs. I've sort of like that's the last thing I want to do is come off stage and pick up a guitar. But um, with the pandemic. When the pandemic first started in Australia, um, I started playing my acoustic 12-string guitar a lot more. It's here right now. I've always got it out now. Here it is. It's a beautiful Guild 12-string. You see it? Yeah. It's beautiful. It's the one Pete Townsend plays. Well, not the actual one, of course, but the same <laughs> model. Um, so um, I picked up my guitar and I, I played a lot more than I've been playing lately and i started discovering the joy uh, because before up until that point i've been writing songs in a sort of a tricky way where i'm fiddling around with bits and pieces and taking a bit from here a bit from there and getting little things and then suddenly i went back to the old school method of picking up an acoustic guitar and going sort of like writing and writing it all on the spot instead of having a little bit of music and then putting lyrics on and stuff. So I, I rediscovered how after, after all this time of, I see, I started trying to write songs like that way back when I was 16 and it didn't work out for me. And it wasn't until I got a, a four track machine. I figured out the way for me to write was I'd make up these instrumentals bit by bit by bit. And then when that instrumental was finished, I'd sing over the top. So it was a sort of a, a process of construction, writing a song where I'd get little bits at a time. And I thought that was a way for me to write. And now at this late stage of the game, I've decided I like just writing with an acoustic guitar and picking up the guitar and not knowing what you're going to do and just going, oh, la, 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 you know. Um, so reinvigorate, reinvigorated with this rediscovery of this old process um i've been writing a lot i started writing a lot of songs last year i wrote ah oh, wrote 11 women and hall of counterfeits i made a couple of albums with uh, that weren't under my name but with these same bunch of guys um i made an album with martin kennedy um where I, where i was just the singer and he would bring in pieces of music and i would sing over the top but I like working in every way. Sometimes I, you know, if someone's came to me and said, would you write some music for me to sing over? I'd be happy to do that. I also like when people give me music that I can sing over. So, so I made an album with a fat, sort of a relatively famous Australian singer called Kate Sobrano, where I just provided the lyrics. I would just write out lyrics and send them to her and she would set them to music. So I, I sort of like, I like every way of writing songs, collaborative, solo where i just do a bit or a piece or or doing it all you know what whatever whatever's sort of going to be the most productive well your new album i was listening to it it's uh it's got a lot of different sounds going on and i like it it's very eclectic yeah. and, and i enjoy that and <clears throat> how do you decide you know i mean some of the sounds you know have a little sound like a little bit of the Stooges a little bit, like just this voice. Some of the sounds have like, I thought a little bit of Doors. I thought everything like around so many different uh, tastes and flavors. How do you put your mind going back and forth between creating all these different sounds? Well, okay, what I did with this record, what I surrounded myself with some really good players. So I would, I would write the songs or we would write the songs together um if you look at the album half half of whole of counterfeits is me on my own and the other half is me writing it with the other players i'd sort of write a piece of music and then i've got these great players and i'd go well what do you think and these guys would play stuff on top of it and i would usually go yes that's it that's what i want or uh, very occasionally i go no that isn't quite what i had in mind and 
sort of just a process of um, epiphanies, really, or serendipity, I should say. You know, you write something and then someone plays on it and then the next person is influenced by what that person played on and they put something else and then you come back and it's sort of, the whole thing sort of starts to build up. But you, sort of, you need really like-minded players. And these guys I'm playing with now, um, they're like, they're, they're, they're old school proper players, guys who can really play and they can play lots of instruments. Um, especially on this album, they had lots of weird esoteric instruments. They had Celtic instruments and Middle Eastern instruments and sort of um, oh, all kinds of things. Um, some Scandinavian instruments uh, and they just sort of bring it all in and you go, oh, how would the hurdy-gurdy sound on this? Or, you know, how would the hammered dulcimer? And um, you just sort of start, you just sort of get on the track of something and then you let your, you let the intuition guide you, you know? Um, and I've been doing it so long, I sort of know how to do it now. Um, you know, when you see, I'm always amazed, like if my car breaks down and I've got no fucking idea why it isn't going. You ring up, the guy comes along, and as soon as he gets there, and he goes, well, that's your tappets. And you go, how do you know that? Because I've been doing it 50 years. You know what I mean? So that's how I kind of gotten with music now. I, I, I sort of can, I can rapidly assess and quickly think about what it should take. And I, I, obviously it wasn't like that when I started. I wanted to be able to do that, but I couldn't. And it took all these years of... You know, I must have spent years and years in recording studios. You know, when you add it all up, it's months and months and months playing around, fiddling around, listening to stuff. Eventually, you kind of get a feeling for what you want. Now, it's it's what's cool I also like about this is you have one song that's under under two minutes. You have one song that's over five minutes. And that's great because sometimes we get stuck in this generic thing where everything is four minutes or you know when you listen yeah. to the radio it's the same thing and yeah. what when you write a shorter song do you just sit there as you said intuition and go okay it stops right here because if i do anything else it's going to sound contrived yeah yeah um sometimes 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 when you're writing a song you write a little bit and then you just oh hang on so sorry about that Someone just tried to ring me. Um, sometimes when sometimes when you're writing a song, yeah, you just go, that's it. You get, you have a verse and a chorus or two verse and chorus. And I've always really liked short songs. One of my very favorite, I, there weren't many really short songs. When I was growing up, just as you say, everything had to be, because of the radio, almost all songs were between three and four minutes. And, then I discovered Mark Boland, and he was a master of having very, very short songs. Um, and I, I, when I started making records with the church, I was always trying to push the envelope. Um, our second album has two very short songs and has two very long songs. And I like that idea. I don't think... I, I very quickly tired of everything supposed, supposed to be three minutes and 50 seconds. Um you know, when you give the song the record company, you go, oh, this one, can't have this one because it goes for four minutes and ten seconds and stuff. I don't like those sort of constraints. So, yeah, I'm always up for a very short song or a very long song. I think I think they both... A very short song, it, it, it's sort of like a... Um, it's like a little saying, like a little aphorism. You know, it's like... It, it does its... You know, you could have an article on good manners, you know, or you could have a whole book on good manners, or you could have do as you would be done by, which is a little aphorism, which sort of says it all in a short space of time. Um, everything's sort of valid. And I like, to, I like to mix it all up. Yeah. Short and long. Now, what does the hall of counterfeits mean? Well, um, it means, um, it means for each song I kind of channeled, I channeled a voice or I channeled a, an aspect of myself or an aspect of humanity or a voice from a past life or a dream or a fantasy. I don't know. It's sort of like each of those people who sings a song on that album 
they're all different people um, and none of them are really real um, it's like it's like I'm I, I'm in a deserted theater and I go in and I dress up in a top hat and a cape and I come out and sing a song and then I go away and I have a kabuki mask and a cloak and then I go come back and I've sort of changed you know what I mean so each 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 person who sings a song is like a counterfeit version of me i don't know something like that <laughs> now you like that i like that that's a good answer you know i like it i, I you know because we all like to change i wear different hats a lot i wear broke facial hair I i'm all different i can like see it. all your hats yeah i got the I hats, see all your hats oh, yeah. behind you yeah. yeah so what got you into music what started you you've been so prolific with all your writing and you've been working forever what got you into music uh well uh, my dad was a piano player um, and not, not prof he wasn't professional. I mean, he had had been, he had done some professional things, but he he was a piano player. And as soon as I could think, he was telling me how important music was. Um, he was always saying, I, I, I may, remember he made me promise. He said, I don't care what kind of girl you marry, if she's young or old, or fat and thin, or white or black, but as long as she likes music, he said, you promise me. You've got to marry someone who likes music because my mother didn't like music. She, my mother was a rare person who just at, just didn't like music. She didn't understand it, didn't do anything for her. And my father was the opposite. He was one of those guys who thought music was the most important thing in life, bar none. And he liked to, he had a really good stereo, even in the early days of stereo when he was the first person anybody knew had a stereo and he used to like to blast this jazz and stuff. Um, Count Basie and Duke Ellington and um, Al Hurd on the piano. Um, and he used to like to blast this music. My mother hated it. Um, so there was this, I grew up in this conflict of this house where one of my parents loved music and one of them didn't like it at all and didn't understand what all the fuss was about. And, I sort of, my attention was drawn to this conflict. And then my parents were very poor and they only had two records. And one of them, when I was, this is when I was four years old, one of them was this Frank Sinatra record called Only, Frank Sinatra Sings for Only the Lonely. And in my opinion, one of the most incredible records of broken-hearted, what we might call torch ballads, um, and Nelson Riddle was this American arranger. You've heard of him. Oh, yeah. He did all the arrangements and all the instruments as Frank singing the songs, which were all sad songs of heartbreak and loneliness. All of the instruments comment. It's different to rock and roll where everything's going, ah, 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 I got a baby. Ah, ah, ah. This is like Frank would sing. And as he sings each line, little instruments in the orchestra would comment, you know, like, um, you know, whatever he was singing about, something would twinkle or sigh or moan or rustle or bang. Um, so I grew up, this one record, decent record that my parents had, I would listen to it over and over. And I started thinking about the nature of songwriting and what did it mean? Why? I mean, it sounds it sounded like Frank had really in, endured all this stuff himself. He was so sad. And then I was, it was very lucky because one of the very first guys to sing in a conversational tone. See, um, before that, singers were, oh, 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 or whatever. For the first time, a guy comes along. It seems kind of, you take it for granted now. But for the first time, a guy came along and would go, it's a lonely old town when you're not around. And he's singing like, He's singing like, to me, he was singing in my ear. He was like a, he was intimate. It wasn't, it didn't have this distant, it was sort of, um, it didn't, it wasn't show busy. So really lucky that I started off that record. And of course, when I was 10 years old, the Beatles happened. My father took me to a, a, a rock concert and left me there. And I saw the biggest band in Australia who were the Easy Beats. 
they had that song Friday on my mind. Do you remember that song? Yeah. David Bowie did a cover of Gonna Have Fun in the City. Na 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 na. Anyway, I saw the Easy Beats at their very peak with a package tour full of other great rock and roll bands. And I walked out of there and went, Jesus Christ, I've got to get some of that. I want the noise. I want the girls. I want the fame. I want the money. I want the, you know, just looking at the instruments. You know, I, 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 used to, I could walk along and see an open guitar case and just look at the velvet and I'd go off into a sort of a dreamy reverie of going, oh, I remember one day riding between, there were these, I lived in this suburb and there were these um, bike, bike paths that you could ride down and one day riding along with a kid and we heard this music and we, we climbed up on the fence and hung over and there were these, this, this awful teenage band practicing but just looking at the instruments and the, the sparkly drums and the weird shapes of the guitars and amplifiers and the guitar cases all open with all that green velvet and stuff. It's like the whole thing just completely sucked me in and obsessed me um, until at age 16, I nagged my dad to buy me a, a, a cheap bass guitar that was like Paul McCartney's, a violin bass. And I just taught myself and sort of jumped in and from there on in I was completely obsessed by rock and roll it was all I cared about all I talked about if you I still feel like this if you don't like the music I like don't if you don't like what I like I don't like you and I really hate you if you like stuff I think is horrible and stupid so if somebody comes up to me and says, oh, I really like so-and-so, I'm like, oh, no, please. <laughs> so it's become the sort of currency of my life. Um, you know, if if I met someone I didn't like, but then he would say, hey, by the way, I love Tyrannosaurus Rex, I go, right, you're going to be my friend. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so it became, it's all wildly out of proportion, and rock and roll and, and music and Everything is is the most important thing in my life that I that I love doing. And my both my brothers were uh, musicians. They didn't they didn't get so successful, but um, one of them one of them or both of them were teaching music at, at a college. Um, and as I said, my dad, um, my my two eldest daughters um, became singers for a while, and um, it just sort of music. We're not, you know, like my whole family are bad at mathematics, but we all have a kind of a, a thing for music. So, you know, it just all runs through families. I think, I think my my dad's sister played piano and his mum played piano. They came from an era where piano was all you had. Like, um, you know, there was no real entertainment. So, someone in the family had to learn the piano, and everyone have a piano so they could sit around having what they call in England a knees up where someone would play this song and everybody would stand around singing the choruses and stuff. So music, it was just sort of expect, you know what I mean? It was like, it was available and it seems so within my grasp that I would be able to do it, that I never had any doubts that um, when I got a bass guitar, I'd be able to figure it all out. And I was, I, it took me a while. Um, and I just sort of figured it all out for myself, like my dad did. My dad used to play the piano, and I, I would say, how do you know what to do? And he said, I don't know. My fingers just know where to go. And that was the best explanation he could give me. So eventually, now if someone sees me playing the bass, said, how do you know how to I go, I don't know. My fingers just know what they're doing. <laughs> After a long time, it just sort of happens. Now, you've been playing for a long time. Tell me, you know, you, tell me how the church came about. Well, um... I'd had a few stabs at some other bands. Um, I when I um, um, things things didn't happen fast for me. I didn't come out of the box writing great songs. Let me say I had to write a hell of a lot of bad songs. So I had a band called Baby Grand. Someone actually released our ta our demo tapes, and it's bloody awful. But it's sort of like it was sort of like glam rock. It was more like The Sweet than David Bowie. I was trying to be David Bowie, but it sounded more like The Sweet. It was kind of very, it was kind of really awful glam rock. Um, and we had this band and nothing ever happened. 
we got some record deals, but we never got any records out. No, no one really liked it. And then I took some time off and I bought this thing. It was the first time um, four-track recording had become available for domestic people. Like in 1977, when I bought it, it was a brand new thing. It was like a before that, four-track tape players were great big things. That you, you know, you'd no way could you afford them or, you know, the tapes were that big. Suddenly, TIAC had made this domestic four-track recorder that you could overdub on. And I saved up and bought one of those. I retired from live work. And I sat at home for three years just writing songs and writing songs, writing songs. Eventually, and um, then I moved to Sydney because I was living in Canberra. And that it was like you had to go to Sydney or Melbourne. You couldn't make it from these little towns. Um, so I moved to Sydney. And I reconnected with Peter, who I'd played in this awful band, Baby Grand. And now I'd written some actually decent songs. Um, we just sort of got on. We pretty quick. They were pretty good songs for their day, you know, and because they were on this, because I, they weren't the sort of songs people could normally write. You wouldn't write these sort of songs that I, I was writing just sitting down. It's sort of, I had them all arranged and I had all the bass parts and lead guitars and all the sort of backing vocals. I had it all figured out by the time I got in the studio. We got a record deal, we got a publishing deal and our first album we're on a TV show. Um, Marty Wilson P Piper came down one day when we were there. Were just there were just three of us. There was this awful drummer who got kicked out very quickly, and Peter and I. And Marty Wilson Piper looked really great. And I said, um, "Can you play guitar?" And he said, "Yeah, I can." And I said, "You're in the band," and so he joined just because he looked great. And we made our first album. We got on this TV show, and we had a hit. And bang, it was all on. It was all the fame and girls and money and traveling and drugs and arguments and all that stuff that I always wanted. <laughs> now, but in the beginning, you know, you you, you released some albums and then there was some didn't, you know, I mean, you know, you started getting critical acclaim in like in, in 88, you know, I mean, Heyday and then Starfish, 85 and 88. Was it before then, you know, I know you, 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 got drops from record labels and stuff like that was there was it a little bit rocky for a while was it what rocky a little bit hard for a while in the beginning no no um oh rocky like that um no our, in australia our first album was a hit and went gold um there was a there was a little rocky period before we made our first album when we were nobodies um when nothing was, nobody really liked us and stuff. But that only lasted about six months. But I'd already, I sort of had already, at, at 26, I suddenly became an overnight success who had put 10 years into it. Um, but so we only had a very short rocky period. And then we, and then we had our hit. And then our first and second albums really did well our second album got great reviews in england we went and toured um in england and, and in europe and then we got a record deal in america and um we started touring america in 84 so i've never i've never been really huge and famous but i've never been i've never gone away either i'm always sort of there chugging along doing my thing neither particularly successful but neither an abject failure so i've managed to eke a living out of this um out of out of rock and roll i've eked a living for 41 years um so i i just sort of i come i i go in and out of style all the time um you know there'll be long years when say grunge happened grunge seemed to wipe us out because we were you know, we weren't grunge. We were something else. And then grunge faded away and we sort of came back into popularity. And then every now and then someone somewhere would go, oh, we really like the church, some big band, you know, would say, yeah, and do a cover of our song. And we sort of come back into popularity again. And we sort of ebb and flow all the time with, the, with you know, just the way the current is going. Um so, you know, you never know what to expect, but it's certainly worth hanging in there. 
Um, and it's always been worth hanging in there. Of course, I am now the only guy left in the church from those days. It's um, it's all new. It's uh, the other musicians uh, have come and gone, and I'm just remaining as the core member. Now, I heard that when you moved, what album did you record in L.A.? Did you was that Starfish? Starfish. Now, we, we recorded Starfish and Gold Afternoon Fix. Now I heard you didn't like LA at first. Uh, that's a very that's a very complex question. Um I I did like it. I I didn't want to be seduced by it. Um I felt like I felt like the thing that why they signed us up and why they wanted us is because we had this sort of um, hard-nosed Sydney thing, this sound and this attitude, and it seemed like American record companies, they'd sign up bands and then try and change them to be, you know, just sign up, you sign up a band like us. We had long hair and scruffy clothes and blah, 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 and we smoked dope and and all of this stuff and immediately they got us they wanted to change all that they wanted us to have a haircut so we look like spandau ballet and wear modern clothes and write songs about this and that so i think i kind of overreacted a bit by being fiercely determined not to be impressed by la and then also coming in with that idea is i didn't want those producers to change it i didn't i didn't it's sort of like a wife. It's like, I was saying this yesterday to somebody, um, and likes how you are. I guess men too, but women are especially good at this. They meet someone who does this thing, and then immediately as soon as they're married, they want to change all that, stop them doing that, and change everything about them into something else. Uh, I had a cat cousin who married a guy who liked to be in a bar drinking, and she knew that. And then she spent the rest of her life trying to get this guy out of the bar. It's like, why didn't she marry a sober guy? So why do record companies come to me, who's a long-haired, dope-smoking Australian hippie, writing songs about the ancient world and all this stuff, and then try and turn me into fucking whoever was the, the big thing in that, that day, you know? Whatever was big in 1988, they were trying to make me be like that. So... Sometimes I overreacted against all those things because I didn't want them to change me. Um, sometimes successfully, sometimes unsuccessfully. Sometimes I did it the wrong way. Sometimes I pissed people off with my stubbornness. And they thought I was. They often they often think if you can't if you don't write a commercial song, you're doing it deliberately. You know, like I wrote Under the Milky Way and it was a big hit. And then when I couldn't do it again, they thought I was, for some conceptual irony, I was withholding these great hits that I had and giving them this this stuff just to fuck with them. But it wasn't like that. But it seemed like that. Because, because now I can see it all so clearly. I can see what happened with my life. I see what happened in all these relationships with these all the musicians and producers and engineers and where it all went right, and where it all went wrong. But at the time when you're mixed up in it and it's 1987 and you're in LA and there are these guys trying to make you sound like Toto, you're like, you know, I, I, I reacted in all the wrong way. Um, you know, I, I reacted in a sort of a bratty, churlish, surly How's that? I was churlish and surly, but never early. Um, so I pissed people off and, and, you know, I was rude and obnoxious. And, but it was, you know, from the moment I started making music, there was some other fucking bastard there trying to make me do it differently. You know what I mean? From the very first fucking time I picked up a guitar, someone was there going, oh, don't do it like that. You know, and I found that all my career. I still find it now. Everything I try to do, somebody's got an idea of how I, I should do it. I should do it differently. Um, and it's very, it's very tiring um, to be always kicking against the zeitgeist. And quite frankly, I hated the 80s zeitgeist. I hated the fucking 80s. I existed 
I'm a classicist. I love the Beatles. I love the Stones. I love Dylan. I love stuff that happened in the 70s with Bowie. Uh, I, did, I didn't want to be like Spandau Ballet or, or um, the Thompson Twins. I didn't want that. I didn't want that mechanical, that thing with the snare drum going. <laughs> I didn't. And now we can look and those stupid haircuts and dancing like. I didn't want to do that, but now it's so easy to tell you that and tell anybody that and they can understand. But when you're in the middle of all that stuff, when you're actually in 1987 and the whole world and like all the music you hear really sucks and what they're trying to do in the music really sucks, it's hard to it's hard to be able to explain that. You know what I mean? Like um, the zeitgeist is everything. Once you get out of it and get away from it, you go, Jesus, wasn't that music in the 80s fucking awful? It was a lot. It was so bad. Um, but at the time when you were in 1987, go, I don't want to be like that. They go, come on, everybody's like that now. You know, you've got to, you've got to have this, all this stuff they were doing. Um, I think, I, I think I've, um, I've been, what's the word I'm looking for? Vindicated. I think I think I've been vindicated, um, and all that. Nobody listens to that all that old rubbish now, do they? That all that, you know, sort of. Hold me now, hold me stay with me. Or Howard Jones, or all that. It's all shit, and that obsession with the drums. Um, you know that idea of the snare drum going. All through a song. Who wants that? I didn't want that. I like Keith Moon kind of going crazy on the drums. Blum, 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 boom. I like that. I don't want some guy going boom, boom, Well, I don't care if you want to do that, but if you're going to produce my record, why are you making me do that? So immediately, as soon as that all started happening, in the when we went to LA, I was fighting all the time with the people who were trying to turn me into something else. I don't know why. Why couldn't they just leave me be as I was doing? Because it's it's the business. And it's so funny. I lived in L.A. for a long time. I lived in L.A. for 18 years. And it's it's a business. Everyone, you know, no matter what it is, if it's movies, they go, oh, well, this movie about a gorilla playing ping pong was big. So now we're going to have a hippopotamus playing badminton. You know, they, they get things. Hey, you know what? That's an idea. <laughs> <laughs> we'll write it together. I, I want to ask you about uh, Under the Milky Way. That becomes a hit. Now, what is it like when you have a hit in America with that song was became very big in America? Is that something that you were that made you very happy? It was it was. It was fucking marvelous. Like um, I always liken it to. I do a bit of I do a bit of body surfing. You go out in the sea. I'm not very good. I'm not a great surfer. Um, but I go out there and every now and then this wave picks you up and you're in just the right spot and it picks you up and then throws you down and you're shooting along with the wave behind you and the salt water. That's what it was like having my one hit. Um, I, the record company got behind it, the press got behind it, the audience got behind it and suddenly we're on the crest of a wave shooting along like... and. For a little while, it was an absolutely marvelous feeling, and and not only that, but it was a good song. Imagine how bad it. I always, I always use this example: Joe Dolce with "Shut Up or You Face." Okay, you know that song? Oh yeah, yeah. What's the matter, you? Imagine having to go around for the rest of your life singing that fucking song. So I was, I was really lucky that my song that I have to sing is not a bad song. So it was a marvelous feeling for a while. It really was. Um, it was everything I always wanted. And I, I had, by that stage, I'd pretty much given up because that was like my sixth or seventh record. And I hadn't had an, any real success in America. And, you know, we were sort of like, we were, we were doing all right. We were sort of a, uh, sort of a cult band, you know, we a college band or whatever it was. And then suddenly there we were, having a hit single and people were talking about it and, and, it, and it had this added bonus that it was sort of every now and then some in America, some really cool song 
gets in the top 40 and people are like amazed like wow um like this song is a hit you know like a, a really strange or beautiful or a song that isn't your usual thing that that doesn't sound like it was written to be a hit under milky way wasn't written to get in the charts when people write those kind of songs and they do get in the charts there's a lot of sort of self-congratulation goes on amongst people who like it, where they're like, wow, finally, and I can put the radio on and there's a couple of good songs on there. So I was really happy with the whole thing. It really worked out marvellously. What, what was it like for you to shoot the video? Because everyone said, you know, videos back then would take all day and they would cost you money and the record company wouldn't tell you that you're paying for that. I Look, I think it's... I think it's quite a shocker. I think the, the video might have cost almost as much as the album. I know the video the video we did for the next album, we did this video for a song called Metropolis. And I think the video cost like 200 grand or something. It was a cast of thousands. It went on for three days. Um, I... Look, I didn't think it was a particularly good video. I didn't think it was a particularly bad video for Milky Way. I think it was all right, actually. Um, I, there was this, it was a, a guy from the South, um, this Southern gentleman. He spoke really, had a really nice soft accent. He seemed to understand the song. He said, do this, do that, pretend this and that. And we just, we just stood there miming the song and they did countless takes of us miming the song um um you know he put all the rest of the stuff together about the the boxer and the egg with the eye in it and all that and everybody seemed to like it um and i was kind of i had a, a sort of neutral attitude towards it i didn't i didn't love it and i didn't hate it it could have been a lot worse it could have been a lot very hard videos always very hard to know what's actually going to happen because I understood the music process and I could understand when someone was bullshitting me. But when you're working with a, a film crew and you're going, hey, I don't really, oh, no, no, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. It's going to, when we do the editing, you won't blah, 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 blah. And then suddenly it will come out and I go, oh, no, it's that thing. I and they go, sorry, too late. That's it. It's closed. It's done. It's edited. It's, that's it. So I was always nervous what they were going to do with videos. And I think, I think with Under Milky Way, it wasn't a bad video at all. Now, you mentioned grunge earlier. Grunge grunge had hurt you guys when it came to yeah. change music a lot. But then, what what did it mean to your, your career when Under the, Under the Milky Way was in Donnie Darko? Did that change? Did that bring you yes. some new heat? What happened, what happened at that time? Definitely. Um, well, as you, as you... Like in rock and roll, is a very fickle business. So as you're going along... You know, you look at you look at from the very beginning. You know, you got the Beatles doing their sort of poppy thing, and suddenly psychedelia came along. Psychedelia would have wiped out loads of people, and then heavy metal would have come along and wiped out psychedelia, and then glam rock comes along and wipes out heavy metal, and then prog rock comes along and wipes out heavy metal, and then punk rock comes along and wipes out everything, and then blah 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 blah, and then the church of post modern post whatever we are always. And then in America, grunge came out, and in England, Britpop came out. And both of them, they seem like they make... It can seem like you're buried and made, you know, worthless and useless by these new developments. Um, so when... I, I remember being at the airport, um, and Nirvana had just exploded... And someone from Arista Records said, you better fucking start making records like that if you want to have a career. And it's like, Jesus Christ. Um, and we did, we seemed to go into the doldrums for a while. Um, and then, yeah, Donnie Darko had that song and we were sort of, a whole new generation of people found out about it. So it was really, really good for business. I wouldn't say suddenly, our, you know, we went from, playing to nobody to, to arenas but it definitely there was this reawakened sort of interest from a generation who hadn't heard under the milky way um so 
when you have your song in a big picture, it's really good for business. Then, of course, back in the day under the Milky Way and Blood Money were used in Miami Vice. I can remember sitting at my manager's house in New York and he said, you're going to have your song on here tonight. And suddenly, you know, the guys driving around and machine guns and guys selling cocaine and yachts and bad guys and police and water and all this. And there's my fucking song playing really loud over the top of it all. Um, it's really exciting when those sort of things happen. Um, Milky Way has been used in lots and lots of things now. Um, so I'm really, uh, every time it gets used, it's, it's always good for business for sure. Now, as you play with the church, you also you also are doing solo music. How do you figure out what you're going to do? How does that? How do you decide? It's well. It's usually it's usually so so simple as I'm going into the studio with the church, so I'm going to do the church. I'm not going into the studio with the church, so it's not going to be the church. Um, very occasionally, I might do something that. I thought it was just going to be for me, and then it's. I think it's so churchy that I'll, I'll have to give it to the church and try and get them to do it. But usually, it's whatever's going on. That's what I do. Um, this this uh, sort of guy who's in dance and electro dance music sent me a bunch of songs to sing on, so I go in and sing on them. That that's never going to be the church, you know, but. When the church starts recording again, that'll be the church. It's sort of pretty easy. Now you've had a you've had a very long career, very successful, and I know you went through a little problem where you you were using a lot of drugs. What did that do to your creativity? Because you always hear stories uh, like people go, "Hey, man, if it wasn't for rock, mute drugs, we'd have no rock and roll." Like, what did it do for you? Did it did it stimulate your creativity? Well, it's a sort of a complicated answer. Um, I. When I, when I first started smoking pot, I immediately went, wow, I want to get this feeling into music. And I also found pot really enabled me to, it still does. I still, I, I, I'm writing some new songs at the moment. I get up and eat some weed or smoke some weed and start writing. It's part of my process. I wouldn't even try and write a song if I wasn't a bit stoned. And then acid came along, and wow, this is a feeling I want to get into music. Of course, I'd already been softened up for that by Sergeant Peppers, and you know, you hear Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds or Strawberry Fields Forever, and you're already getting a bit of a clue of what this drug thing's going to feel like. And then I, I sort of, I had this feeling like each drug I did, ecstasy would come along, and blah blah blah. I want to get this feeling into music. Finally, unfortunately, I encountered heroin. And for a little while, wow, this is a feeling to get into music, this slow, warm, sort of whatever it is, this sort of, I, I could feel it. I could feel it as a tangible thing that I, I'm like, this feeling, I've got to try and express it as music, which is our album, Priest Equals Aura. That was when I was in my honeymoon period. With, with opiates but then very quickly um, it became I was making music despite heroin not because of it so I had a little I had a little honeymoon period where it made me very creative and mixed uh, mixed up with marijuana and opium well, I found or heroin was a great creative sort of a world I could tap into very quickly when I became an addict, it wasn't helping at all. And I sort of, the 90s were kind of one of my worst periods, I think. Um, and it was a great relief when I finally got off that and just got back to marijuana, which never lets me down. Ne never, never. Let, and, and, you know, all my life, it's, it's funny. It's funny to talk about marijuana because it's now it's so legal in America you know, you can you can walk around LA airport with weed in your pocket. You can talk about it. You can smoke it. You can go to shops and all that. But once upon a time, it was still fucking illegal. I, I remember standing outside a club in Denver or something, smoking a joint in 1985, and this cop car goes past, and and we're all going, "Holy fuck!" 
you know, we're going to go to fucking jail or, or, <laughs> or never come back into America or whatever it is. And so it's really easy to, it's really easy to forget how, how illegal it was. You know, they were fucking, you know, you, you didn't want to, especially in America or especially in a country in Sweden, they used to have these ads. They'd have a guy and he's a healthy looking guy. And then three months later, he's sort of like, and it's like he was smoking hashish in three months. Now look at him. And the guy's, you know, he's like totally fucked. Like the guy who's been on fucking crystal meth for 20 years, this guy in three months. So it's hard, it's hard to imagine how much anti, how anti they, they were. But I have to say at age 66, in pretty good health, having written thousands of songs, um, I, I think marijuana is the answer for me for writing songs, for painting, for being creative, for writing articles. Um, I smoke a joint and my mind becomes really active. I can spot the potential in things really quickly. I can play it. I can pick up a guitar and play a chord progression. And if I wasn't stoned, it would just be a chord progression. If I'm stoned, I play the chord progression. Suddenly, I can spot the potential in it. So it really works out for me. It doesn't work out for everybody. Um, but for me, um, I, I, I'm, I will always be a pot smoker. I, I will never stop. I was really angry when Paul McCartney married that silly woman who tried to make him stop smoking pot. It's like, what? Making Paul McCartney not smoke pot? It's a sacrilege. It's, it's unbelievable. The, the guy who wrote all those and still writes all those songs because of weed and then someone marries him and says no you shouldn't do that anymore it's bullshit it's a it's i don't think marijuana is a drug like other drugs i think it's like a god-given fucking thing to, to open up your mind and, and and sort of do wonderful things that that's how i look at it anyway you know, if someone I, agree, said to me, I, I agree with you because i was i was talking to someone and they they were trying to tell me because I live in New Jersey and New Jersey just legalized weed. And I was talking to this young guy and he tried to tell me that marijuana was a gateway drug. And I said, what are you crazy? I said, the only time I've ever done anything, any kind of drug is after drinking. I said, after marijuana, you just want to hang out. I'm like, it's not a gateway. Marijuana is its own standing drug. And I'm glad it's legal. I don't smoke because I can't handle it. I go, woo, you know. But I think it's it's so stupid when I hear people in this day and age argue, like, oh, no, marijuana should be illegal. I'm like, dude, you know, people drink and drive. People drinking, smoking and drive are a lot more cautious than people who drink and drive. Yeah. Well, I'm, yeah, I can only totally agree with you. Now, you said, you know, you've written a, a, thousands of songs. Now, today, at yeah. this day and age, when you write a song, do you know if it's going to be really good or you're like, eh, I don't know, and you scrap it? What do you do? What's your process? Um, I, I wouldn't bother finishing a song if I didn't think it was going to be really good. So anything that I finish and record, I already think is pretty good. Otherwise, it wouldn't, I wouldn't be wasting my time with it. Um, I don't know. I, I listen to people around me. Um, if, if my girlfriend's sitting there, I'm writing a song, she goes, wow, that's great. I listen to that. If I play it to the other musician, they wow, that's great. The engineer. I'm always got my ears open for people's opinions. I play, play songs to friends and see what they think. So I'm always, I'm always open for, to hear people's opinion of what I'm doing. Now, What's the future of the church and the future of you? Do you guys are you are you are you planning another solo album or are you planning a church yeah. album? Um, well, the church are in the middle of making an album. It's because of COVID um, got kind of slowed down because we couldn't all be together. Um, Australia's taken a different approach to America. Um, Australia's like when it's really surging in one state of Australia, that state can't go anywhere else. So if you're from New South Wales, you can't go to Victoria or Queensland. And if Queensland takes off, you know, we won't let them here. And so we never had a situation where everyone, in, and then we got 
Our, uh, one of our newest members, Jeffrey Kane, who lives in Alabama, he couldn't even get into Australia. So the whole church album got slowed down by COVID and we started in 2019. Um, I'm not quite sure when it's going to be ready and when it's going to be finished. Um, as for me, I'm always working on new albums. So I've just... Um, I did an Instagram show the other night and I said, I'm going to write a new album by next week and play it to you if you want to tune in. And today, before I got on to you, I was sitting here mucking around with the guitar because I've already written three songs. I need another seven. So I've got till Monday to write another seven good songs to play to them all. So I will have, I will have more albums. If I can get to the studio, I'm so locked down, I can't go five miles from five kilometers from my house i can't go five kilometers from my house there's a curfew between 5 a.m and 9 p.m and you can't you can't do this and you can't do that because we've got the delta variant is in the community and we're um i had my last double shot yesterday i don't know what's going to happen i have this loads of gigs i have loads of plans I want to do loads of traveling. I want to come back to America. We're booked in for this Cruel World Festival next year. We're supposed to be coming to America. Um, I hope I hope it all can be as it's planned to be. Um, and if it isn't, I'll just still be here doing whatever I can, whenever I can. Still, um, I'm trying to be so prolific, it's ridiculous. You know what I mean? I'm trying to like, like Paul Accountifits was a double album, just fucking just be prolific as you can like you know i'm getting old i could drop off my perch at any moment in my twilight years it's my way against railing at the dying of the light is to write loads of songs you know so when i'm gone i don't want to be one of those guys who writes a bunch of songs when he's young and then doesn't write anymore i saw i'm it's very good for me to write songs it makes me it makes it, although the process is sort of grueling a bit when I'm looking for the right, some, you know, when something's really eluding you that, but um, it makes me happy and feel sort of young and vibrant to, to write music and sing. So I'll keep going forever and till I, till I can't sing or till I drop off my perch. One final question. Do you, okay. uh, do you, do you miss, performing do you miss being out on the road is that something yes. you missed or have you i've talked to some artists who have said they've enjoyed the time off because they've gotten to know their family again and they've gotten to be home and what is it like for you not being on the road and especially i, miss it. I totally miss it i miss it i miss the travel i miss the audiences i miss the routine um i really like i really like the routine idea of a band like i like the fact that you're on a bus and you're going where they've told you you're going to go and the tour manager go okay listen up you guys um when we get to boston you know you guys have got till five o'clock you can do whatever you like at five o'clock we're gonna have a sound check and then we're gonna have dinner and then eight o'clock you're gonna have a meet and greet nine o'clock you're gonna play i like that regimentation i like the fact that all the choices are taken out of my hands and you're going to do this and you're going to do this and you're going to do this and everything's done for you and you can sort of you can really regress to being like a, a child on a school outing you know where you don't have to do anything all you have to do is get on the bus and they take you there and everything's arranged i sort of like that um i like traveling around i'm, I'm i miss i miss america i, I miss i miss england um and I, the incredible thing you get out of playing a great show um, with a great band, you know, that incredible sort of... I mean, why else would Dylan just do it? He doesn't need the money. You know, he just made $300 million. I bet you as soon as this is all over, as soon as he can, he'll be out there playing again because there's something about that transaction between the performer and the audience that's just like nothing else. Um it's not just it's not just purely ego. It's not like oh, I've got to stand on a stage and be worshipped. It's just I like I like you know worked on this music and you play it and people get happy. 
what more could you want? Well, that's awesome, Steve. I want to thank you for taking the time with me. Okay, mate. What's right. your What's your Instagram? Um, my Instagram is it's like Steve Kilby with all the vowels gone. Okay. So it's S T S T V K L B Y. Okay. Well, people, go check out Steve on uh yeah. on uh, Instagram. Go to his website, thetimebeing.com. Go buy his music. Go get his new solo album, The Hall of Counterfeits. Uh, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 865 episodes there. Email me, cooper, coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at coopertalk. Instagram, at coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.